took, look, taking a, a broad look at the events of 1 Kings chapter 13 and then we'll make various applications. To give some background information, the date was about 975 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and by that time the land that God had given to the 12 tribes of Israel after after delivering them from their affliction in Egypt had been divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom of Judah which comprised of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and the northern kingdom of Israel which comprised of the, the other 10 tribes. The king of Israel, Jeroboam, not wanting his subjects to go to Jerusalem in the southern kingdom in order to worship God, made two golden calves and he set them up as gods. One he set up in Dan in the north of the kingdom and the other golden calf he set up in Bethel in the the southern part of his kingdom near the border with Judah. King Jeroboam of Israel said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Also Jeroboam appointed his own priesthood. That can be seen in uh, 1 Kings chapter 13 verse 33. We, We heard that a few minutes ago. Look at verse 33 there. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. The worship of golden calves, and also... uh, the king's priests, the priests that he'd consecrated himself, priests that had nothing whatsoever to do with the Levitical priesthood, which was appointed by God. All of that speaks volumes of just how deeply Israel had fallen into idolatry. Can you imagine it? The great deliverance that the Lord had brought to the Israelites some 500 years earlier when he led them out of Egypt and they walked on dry ground through the Red Sea. Jeroboam ascribed that great deliverance to what? Not to the Lord, but to a couple of golden calves. It's amazing what people will fall for, isn't it? This is what these two calves were. One in uh, Dan at the north, the northernmost part of his kingdom. Bethel, the southernmost part of his kingdom. They're the things... Those things there delivered the Israelites out of at their afflictions in Egypt about 500 years earlier. It's, it seems that the ruling class can tell people what they want to and get them to go along with it. I don't know. Anyway, what we have in 1 Kings chapter 13 is a man of God coming from the southern kingdom of Judah to the northern kingdom of Israel and delivering a strong prophetic message to the altar that King Jeroboam had erected in Bethel and the man of God delivered that message at a time when the king was burning incense on the altar. 
The prophetic words were confirmed with a sign which resulted in King Jeroboam being physically afflicted. The Lord, the Lord restored him after the king pleaded with the man of God to intercede for him. Afterwards, the man of God declined an invitation from the king to go back to his royal residence to refresh himself and to receive a reward. His reason is given in verse 9, why he didn't go back to the king's palace, verse 9. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. No bread, no water, go back to Judah, taking a different route. Simple instructions by the, from the Lord. The man of God then went on his way, taking a different route to the one that he came on, as per the Lord's instructions. But whilst he was still in Bethel and resting under an oak tree, he was met by an old prophet from Bethel, who tracked him down after his sons had informed him about the man of God. The old man invited him home to eat bread, and as can be seen in verse 16, he declined for the same reasons as before, verse 16. And he said, so this is the man of God speaking to the old prophet, he said, I may not return with thee, nor go in with thee, neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with thee in this place. We know that that was the instructions that he'd received from the Lord. Then the old prophet said to the man of God that an angel spoke to him by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. And we're specifically told in verse 18 that the old prophet lied. Following on from that lie, the man of God went with him back to his house where he had bread to eat. Back at the old prophet's house, the word of the Lord came to him, came to the old prophet, whereupon he said to the, to the man of God that because of his disobedience in eating bread and drinking water, his body would not be buried with his fathers. And sure enough, when the man of God resumed his journey, he was killed by a lion. The old prophet heard about the man's, man of God's demise. He buried him and he instructed his sons to bury him in the same tomb beside the man of God when he died. As for King Jeroboam, he never did remove the idolatry from his kingdom. He was truly a wicked and unrepentant king of Israel. First of all, we can consider the man of God and his prophetic words in the hearing, the presence and hearing of King Jeroboam, looking again at verses 3 through to 6. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand, which he had put forth against him, dried up, 
so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said unto the man of God, Entreat now the face of the Lord thy God and pray for me that my hand may be restored me again. And the man of God besought the Lord and the king's hand was restored him again and became as it was before. The man of God, his name isn't given anywhere in in this chapter. We know that uh, he was a man of God. In other words, he was a prophet of God. And 1 Kings chapter 13 refers to him as a prophet of God no less than 15 times. Having come to Bethel where King Jeroboam was ministering at the altar that he set up for idolatrous worship, the man of God spoke prophetically in verse 2 where he said, well he speaking to the altar, he cried out against the altar in the, in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. Furthermore, those prophetic words were followed or accompanied by a sign. I've already read to you that sign. Look again at verse 3 there. He gave a sign the same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And that sign came to pass in verses 5 and 6 when King Jeroboam put forth his hand and said, lay hold of him, him being the man of God, and the king's hand was afflicted in the bargain. Moreover, the words of that prophecy were were fulfilled about 300 years later when, sure enough, a descendant called Josiah became the king of Judah. We see that exact fulfilment there. Look at verse 2. Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name. Again, look, 300 years later, Josiah became the king of Judah. And in 2 Kings, chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, it is written, Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel, and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, had made, both that altar and the high place, he broke down and burned the high place. This is what Josiah did 300 years later. He burnt the high place and stamped it small to a powder and burnt the grove, the grove being the images of the idols. And as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchres or the tombs that were there in the mount and sent and took the bones out of the sepulchres and burnt them upon the altar and polluted it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. We see it all there in verse 2 again. The very end of verse 2. Men's bones shall be burnt upon thee, upon the altar. And then 300 years later, that's precisely what happened. 
We've seen that a sign accompanied the man of God's words of prophecy and in due time the prophecy came to pass when Josiah became king. No doubt we're more familiar with the many prophecies that speak directly of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know that the Old Testament is full of law and prophecies. But when it comes to naming all these prophecies, we're probably more familiar with the prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, directly concerning him. For example, in Psalm 22, a psalm of David, it is written, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. At this point, you know very well that David, speaking prophetically, is most certainly not speaking about himself. And then he goes on to say, They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Of course, all of that was fulfilled at the cross. 1,000 years later, at the centre cross at Golgotha, when the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life as an atonement for sin. What about now, though? What about now? What are we to make of someone who claims to be a prophet of God? Nowadays. I ask that because... I've met them, they're around. We get people claiming to be prophets. They don't call, they're not so much men of God. And I would say they're anything but, anything but men of God. Nevertheless, people who, um, claim to be prophets. I find Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 and 20 to be very helpful. In that verse, The Apostle Paul, speaking to Gentile believers, said, Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now, listen to this bit that um, the Apostle Paul said to these Gentile believers. He said, And are built, the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the Apostles, and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul was saying that the church is built, he likens the church to a spiritual house. He's not the only one who did that, the Apostle Peter did as well. Paul's saying that the church is built upon the revelation and the doctrine of the apostles and the um, the prophets all of which is recorded in our Bibles and it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ who is the head of the church. Jesus holds everything together, everything being all of us who belong to him, Jews and Gentiles alike. By the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who belong to Jesus are living stones in a spiritual building of which Jesus is the chief cornerstone. But we're told in Ephesians uh, that the, the, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. Indeed, if you look elsewhere, you'll find that Jesus 
no great surprise here, Jesus is also the foundation and he is the chief cornerstone. So what are we to make of all that? The Bible is complete. We can expect no new revelation from God. Everything we need to know can be found in the divinely inspired word of God. And with that in mind, anyone who who now claims to be a prophet of God or an apostle, because we've got apostles as well, We've got an apostle. We are privileged to have an apostle living on this island. A self-proclaimed apostle, admittedly. So anyone who now claims to be a prophet of God or an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is claiming to be a foundation of the household of God. That's quite a big claim, isn't it? They are the foundation of the household of God with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And we say amen to that. But they are not to be taken seriously when you, when, because they simply are not the foundations of the household of God. It's a very grand claim that they make. And quite frankly, they are false apostles and they are false prophets unless you imagine that the foundation that that foundation is still being put in place i know that jesus said upon this rock i will build my church speaking of himself there jesus as i've already said he's the foundation upon this rock upon him he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail but additionally we see that the prophets and the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, they too are, are, are said to be the foundations of the household of God. Certainly not someone who comes along today claiming to be a prophet of God or an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you understand what I'm saying and I guess I hope that you would agree with me on that. Secondly, we can consider the boldness of the man of God. Back to 1 Kings chapter 13. Verse 2, look at his boldness there. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord, behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee, and men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. I would say that even though he was God's messenger, it must have taken tremendous courage for that man of God to say what he said to the altar when King Jeroboam, who was the one who had set up the altar, and Jeroboam was the one who had consecrated that priesthood. And indeed, we've seen at the end of the chapter that Jeroboam consecrated himself a priest as well. So there are idolatrous priests, including the king himself. And that idolatrous king was standing right there at the altar of burning incense when the man of God said, said what he said. When he was crying against the altar. But God, who had sent his servant with that message, delivered him from the king despite the king saying, lay hold on him, in verse 4. 
Another example of having a holy boldness, even before kings, is one of the last of the prophets, John the Baptist, who said to King Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That rebuke resulted in John being imprisoned, beheaded and promoted to heavenly glory. It's not just the prophets of God. People like the man of God in chapter 13 here, or John the Baptist, who were seen to be filled with a Holy Spirit boldness and who were unafraid before men. Just look at Acts of the Apostles. The church, the, the, the first century church, was filled with a Holy Spirit boldness at a time of great persecution. And as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 to 8, For God have not given us the spirit of fear. Who's us? I'd say that's anyone uh, who, who belongs to Jesus. He's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. John Gill commenting on that verse said that God has not given us a cowardly spirit so as to be afraid of men or devils of what they will say or do and so as to be discouraged in, sink under or be be deterred from the work of the Lord, the preaching of the gospel opposing the errors of false teachers and reproving men for their sins. I think there's a lot we can learn from these these prophets of old and again, as I say, the, the first century church, a, a Holy Spirit boldness that they had. Next, we can consider the disobedience of the man of God. Despite him being a prophet of God and despite his holy boldness as he cried against the altar in the presence and hearing of the wicked king Jeroboam, he was nevertheless killed by a lion having been disobedient to the word of God when he ate bread and he drank water at the old prophet's house. He did that in disobedience to God, the word of God. Verse 9 tells us that the Lord had told him to eat no bread nor drink water. Having complied with that command when he declined to go back to, uh, when he declined an invitation to go back to King Jeroboam's house, he then weakened his resolve when he was lied to by the old prophet who said to him, An angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. Uh, Admittedly, the man of God had no reason to think that the old prophet was lying to him. Why would he think that? And what he was being told by the old man to do was not in and of itself sinful was it eating bread drinking water going back to his house you won't see any of that in the ten commandments do not eat bread do not drink water uh, and so on 
But he nevertheless ought to have sought prayerful guidance from the Lord when he was told to do the opposite of what the Lord had already told him to do. That should have rung bells, uh, rung alarm bells. Maybe by the time the old prophet found the man of God sitting under the oak tree, he was so hungry that it suited him to believe what the old prophet was about to say to him because he was hungry and thirsty anyway. I don't know. The consequences were dire for him. He was killed by a lion and that was clearly of the Lord. I say that because for one thing, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who then uh, predicted that the carcass of the man of God would not come unto the tomb of his fathers. Then when the man of God resumed his journey home, he was killed by a lion and that was clearly of the Lord being killed by the lion. I say that by virtue of the fact that the lion did not eat him, neither did the lion kill and eat the ass. The lion stood beside the carcass of the man of God. So did the ass stand there. Can you see what a serious matter it is to disobey God? Even if by your own sinful reckoning, your sin is not really a sin at all, or it's just a tiny, tiny sin, such as eating some bread and drinking some water, albeit against God's will. Consider the Garden of Eden, where disobedience to the word of God, where it all started. Adam and Eve, what did they do? They ate some fruit, resulting in sin entering the world by one man and death passing on to all men, for that all have sinned. The fact is that the holy and righteous God will not turn a blind eye to anyone's disobedience to his commands, no matter how seemingly small those sins might appear to us to be. We have all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Doesn't matter how small or big we see those sins to be, the wages of sin is death. Everlasting punishment in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Therefore, I say to you, repent and be forgiven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't compare yourself to everyone else and think, well, he or she is far worse than me. All I've done is this little thing or that little thing. Not like that person over there. The wages of sin is death. And as has already been seen with the man of God, even if you have forgiveness for all your sins, even if you have everlasting life, as I say, that man of God, he's referred to as a man of God no less than 15 times in chapter 13. Even so, you can still expect consequences for your sin, your rebellion against God, your heavenly Father, dear Christian, despite there being no more condemnation to you. But I suspect that you know that anyway. As a Christian, your sin can bring disgrace upon the church and it can bring serious consequences for you in this lifetime.
Praise God that you have been delivered from damnation. But it's not a good idea to sin. You shouldn't want to anyway as a Christian. But you know as well as I do, sin has its consequences for all of us. Finally, earlier on we considered the apostles and the prophets by whom God spoke to people in times past. However, in these last days, God has spoken to us by who? By his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate apostle. He is the ultimate prophet. He is God's final messenger. He is the the ultimate teacher. He is the ultimate message. And his is the ultimate doctrine. We are to listen to Jesus and receive instruction from him. We do that when we read the Bible, which speaks of him, his life of perfect obedience to God, his sacrificial death at the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. Furthermore, the Bible speaks of his coming again to judge the living and the dead. Concerning Jesus, the Bible tells us that there is none other name under heaven given unto men whereby we must be saved. Not can be saved, we must be saved. See how serious it is. No other, None other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. When Jesus comes again in judgment, will you be rightly and deservedly condemned for your sin and your rebellion against your maker, almighty God, no matter how wonderful a life you imagine you lived? Or will you receive a heavenly inheritance having trusted in the Son of God as your saviour from sin who kept the law on your behalf and who paid the price for all your sins, the big ones, the little ones, all your sins, past, present and future. And he paid the price for all of them at that centre cross. Amen.